It's a message actually that, that in different ways I've preached before at least once. It's a message God gives me. Sometimes I need it twice a week. Sometimes I need it every few months. But it's a message that will, will never grow weary because it's, uh, it's a message that, that we need to be reminded of. This morning I want to ask you a question. And the question is, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Now, for those that don't know, an optimist is somebody who, who sees the potential, sees the good, sees the possibility, sees the things that, that, that the way they could and sort of believes that that's what's going to happen. And the pessimist goes, I'm really not sure things could go bad, things could, could not do really well. And so it's not a hypothetical question. I'm going to ask you to put your hand up and own it this morning, would you see yourself as an optimist or a pessimist? So those, those who say that they're an optimist, do you want to put your hand up? Some, some optimists, awesome, awesome. Those who would say they're a pessimist, do they want to put their hand up? Okay, now a whole bunch of people didn't put their hand up. Now I'm not sure if you are confused by the question, or you're like me, and you say, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, I'm a realist. Now, I'm sorry to say, you're actually a pessimist in denial. <laughs> so if you think you're a realist, it's highly unlikely you're actually a pessimist and, and denying that fact. But, um, but yeah, we're going to come back to that. What I want to do today is look at three stories, and I'm not going to go in depth to each of the three stories in the Bible, um, but they're three stories that have a really important thing to tell us, and they're consistent even though they're diverse. So if you want to follow along in the Bible, you're welcome to, but you may, may find it chops and changes a little bit because I'm not reading the whole passages. I'll be skipping a couple of things. Just, just feel free to go with the flow if you want. The first story comes from 1 Kings 17. Um, we're starting in 1 Kings 17 verse 1. It says, Now Elijah, who was from Tishba in Galead, um, now, Catherine, by the way, was reading a few complicated words, and I said, if you say it confidently, it sounds like you know what you're doing. So there you go, Catherine, that's a demonstration of that. I have no idea how to say those words, but you do it confidently. Told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Whoa, that's pretty significant. There's going to be a drought that Elijah is going to declare until Elijah says the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kerith Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kerith Brook, east of the Jordan. So we start the story with this picture of Elijah the prophet being told by God to go and declare to the king that there's going to be a drought. Pretty, pretty significant uh, start to the story. Elijah goes and meets a widow and some stuff happens. We're going to continue just a little bit of a snippet of the story from 1 Kings 18, the start of 1 Kings 18. It says, later on in the third year of the drought, so we've now got three years of drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Now, Ahab wants Elijah dead. Ahab doesn't like what, what's happened here. There's famine and, and Ahab wants Elijah dead. So the instruction to go to Ahab, God sending Elijah to Ahab, is what appears to be a death sentence. Elijah is going to Ahab 
trusting God, trusting God. And we're going to continue the story. Um, there's, there's another amazing part that happens there about Elijah and the prophets of Baal and a, and a bit of a miracle off that happens with some fire and, and it's awesome. Read the whole thing. It's brilliant. But we're going to skip down to verse 41. It says, Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Three years of drought, and this is what God's telling Elijah to say to Ahab. So Ahab went to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, Go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked, then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Then Elijah shouted, Hurry to Ahab and tell him, Climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. This is after three years of drought, and all he's got is a, is a little cloud the size of a man's fist on the horizon. And soon the sky was black with clouds, a heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Amazing story, amazing story. We're going we're to come back and, and unpack that a little bit more. But I want to jump now to Luke 19. And we're going to read verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I had cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Awesome. Now, now story three. It's all right. We're going to tie these together. We're going to read from Acts 5, starting at verse 17. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, Go to the temple 
and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told and immediately began teaching. So the angel of the Lord released them from prison and they go back to doing the thing that was the reason why they were in prison. And they get arrested again. Um, after they're, they're obviously preaching in a public place. Um, so, so the uh, chief priest and the Sadducees realize that they're out again and so they arrest them again. And they um, bring them in and they have a trial deciding whether or not they should kill them. They're, they're pretty uh, angry with, uh, with the apostles. And we're going to start back at verse 40. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Remember their discussion was about whether or not to kill them. But they got flogged instead and told never to talk about Jesus again. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, these are three completely different stories, three completely different contexts, three completely different environments, and yet they actually carry one really significant thing, possibly more, but at least one really significant thing that I want to um, point out today. I want to be really honest with you because, unfortunately, I've got to say, Christians can often be greater grumblers and whingers than the average person. And I'm talking to myself here too. Christians often can be quite negative and discouraging at times. And yet the theme that happens in these three stories consistently, and this is what I really want to take, a, take away today, is that where God is, there is always hope. Where God is, there is always hope. It's very easy for us to get caught up in circumstances, get caught up in the momentum, get caught up in, in discouragement or in negativity and lose sight of this point. I am convinced that God is an eternal optimist. His perspective is always one of hope. We look at this first story of Elijah and I want to, want to say where, where God's word is, where his prophetic word is, where his logos word is, there is hope. And in Elijah's circumstance, he had a situation of three years of drought that he knew was initiated by God, and he was trusting that God was going to bring a fix to that. And after three years of drought, he actually goes and tells the king, that it's about to be over. The king that wants to kill him for the drought. And Elijah's position of that is to go and pray and wait for what God promised. In the midst of drought, no cloud on the horizon, Elijah says, I'm going to hope in the God that told me this was going to change. Then what happens is he sends his servant to look to see if there's any evidence of change. And there is no change. But does it change his posture, his position? There's really good reason for Elijah to go, it's been, it's been a drought for, for three years. There's no sign of change. Maybe God was wrong. Maybe God was wrong. But there is always hope when God's involved. 
Seven times his servant goes. And it's not until the seventh time that there's change. And the change in our eyes is insignificant. Who cares about a little cloud the size of a fist on the horizon? But Elijah knew. Elijah knew that he could trust God. Elijah knew that there was hope in God. And immediately the response is to say to King Ahab, you better run because this rain that's coming is going to stop you from getting back home. You need to go now. And sure enough, God was faithful and came through. The second story is one of Jesus. And it's one of Jesus walking through a town where there was a range of people, but one in particular, a loser of all losers, a guy that had nothing going right in, in, in a kingdom sense. He was selfish, he was greedy, he was manipulative. He was a sinner of all sinners, they called him. A dirty sinner. And yet in that place, where his life was hopeless, Jesus looked up and called him by name. Jesus looked up and called him by name. Because where Jesus is, there is hope. Even for a loser like Zacchaeus. Now, Jesus didn't correct Zacchaeus. You notice that there's no evidence from this that Jesus told Zacchaeus he was wrong. What he did do is he said, there is hope here, Zacchaeus. Because first of all, I know you by name. And second of all, I'm going to do something that's offensive to these people. And I'm going to come and eat with you. An amazing sign of a bond, of a respect, of a value placed on Zacchaeus that was not given by those around him. He saw hope in a guy whose life was hopeless. Amazing. And the third story is of the apostles out being obedient as the Spirit leads them, miraculously leading out of prison, back onto the streets to preach the word, to share the gospel. And yet their lives are on the line. Their lives are so close to death. They're skirting with death every day. If you look at their circumstances, you would say they should be the most discouraged people that you know. They're out doing what they believe God told them to do, and yet they're being persecuted for it. What sort of a life is that? They have good reason to be discouraged. And yet, they go and get flogged. They get flogged for, for their obedience to God, and they walk away rejoicing, eager to continue what God set up for them. In the world's eyes, so many situations look hopeless. So many situations look like there's good reason to be frustrated, good reason to be grumbling, good reason to be negative. And yet where God is, there is always hope. Where God is, what we see with our eyes doesn't define our perspective. It says in Romans 12:15, we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. I'm not trying to suggest that we all become Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, where, where we go around saying, hey, hidey ho, neighbor, everything's amazing, and, and it's all beautiful, and, and we have this cheesy sense of life that everything is blissful. These situations were real. 
There was no denying that there was a famine for three years and people were suffering. There was no denying that Zacchaeus was not a nice guy. He caused a lot of pain and suffering in people's lives. And there's no denying that the apostles were being tortured. But that passage in Romans doesn't say, grumble with those that grumble. Be negative with those that are negative. In mourning and in rejoicing, there is still hope. In mourning and rejoicing, there is still hope. And the circumstances do not dictate whether there's hope or not. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, love being championing possibility. Love being championing possibility. Last week, Nathan unpacked, unpacked the idea of stewarding, or, or stewarding, depending on where you're from. And this is an area I believe we need to steward as a church. Hope is confident expectation. And as a church, we won't want to be people that, that wallow and be negative and drag people down. We actually want to be people that speak hope into others' life. Where the word of God is, there is hope. We want to be people that, that use the word of God, that prophesy into people's lives as God leads us, to, to speak life and hope into people's lives. That's our role. That's our purpose. Where Jesus is, lives are transformed. There is hope even for the hopeless. It says in Romans 5, 8, 8 to 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love, this champion of possibility, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what? I actually think, and this is just me, I think God actually shines best when things are broken. I think the amazing story of Elijah and Zacchaeus and the apostles are amazing because things were tough. We actually can be beacons of light when they're hard. We can be signposts shining light into places that are tricky and difficult. And I believe God's calling us as a church to do that. I'm convinced that as a body, our perspective and our posture is to be one of always being hopeful when God is there. And I'm not sure about you, but I haven't been anywhere that God hasn't been. And so what that tells me is no matter how hard the situation, no matter how tough the circumstance, we rejoice and we grieve, but we always have hope. We never let go of the hope. I was thinking earlier this week, I can tell whether you're a pessimist, and this is not for everyone because not everyone has kids, but I can tell whether a parent is a pessimist or an optimist by talking to your children. Now, you might be feeling a little bit vulnerable right now, and that's for good reason. But when I talk to youth particularly, I can tell you whether their parents are an optimist or a pessimist because of the words and the way they look at situations. When you ask someone how their week is, very quickly, you know whether they're an optimist or a pessimist. And then sadly, we don't only affect ourselves when we radiate negativity, we actually multiply that. And I'm convinced that God is saying today, and he's continuing to say, I really love and see the potential and the hope in you multiplying something new.
in you multiplying something that the world does not know. And that is hope where God is. Today, I want to reset myself. I want to reset the different ways I look at people, the different ways I look at situations, the different ways I look at God's word and the things that is spoken. And I want to say, God, in every single one of those scenarios, I want to have a perspective of hope. That's not always easy. And this week as I've been preparing, there's been uh, 20, 30, 40 things I've gone, hang on a minute, God, wrong perspective. Let me change this. And this morning, we're actually going to step into that not easy space. We're actually going to workshop this. Don't freak out. Don't all turn your cameras off and leave because this is valuable. This is worthwhile. And and I'm convinced that God wants hope to be an injection this morning in our lives. So this exercise is an exercise of trusting God for hope. And there's two parts to it. Two parts. Don't just stop at one. You've got to get to two. Part one is what I want everyone to do now, if you have the ability to, and if you can't do it now, I want you to do it straight after the service. I want you to look at the screen and I want you to look at all the names and the faces and I want you to pick somebody. Now, the next part's going to get a little bit trickier because it's going to take some effort. The next part is I want you to send them a message. I want you to send them a message of encouragement, of hope. It doesn't have to be a profound prophetic word. In fact, it's probably better that it isn't. In this case, we're just, this is a workshop, right? So I want you to send a message. Now you might go, hang on, I don't have a phone. I don't have their number. We might have to do some work here, right? This might stretch us and push it out of our boundary. If you want to send Nathan or I a text going, I'd love the mobile number of this person or the email address, go for it. Put a little bit of effort in. Now I'm seeing a lot of people sitting there not doing anything. You're going to have to get up and move. You're going to have to actually get your phone. Uh, it's going to, it, this, is, this is workshop. This is effort. Now, if you want, you can on Zoom, you can actually, in the chat, you can pick someone's name. I don't want anyone not to do this. Don't think I've set the bar too high. I hope I haven't. I think we're all capable of sending someone a message. Just a message of hope. It doesn't have to be an essay. It could be a single line that says, I really believe God's going to do something good this week for you. That could be it. I don't know what it is, but it can be really simple. Yeah. Now that's step one. Awesome. I'm seeing a lot more movement now. Very good. Step two is a little bit harder. Because what happens if you don't receive a message? Because if we do the maths and we live in rainbows and unicorns world, everyone should be able to get a message. But the reality is I can guarantee you not everyone's going to get a message and maybe that's you. What are we going to do with that? Because for me, this is just as important as step one. Because we could look at that and go, no one sent me a message. No one loves me. I'm not as significant as other people. I didn't get noticed. That is a lie. And this is why step two is as important as step one. Because the point of the exercise is to look for hope. And what that tells me, if somebody didn't get a message, is that this workshop is so important. (laughs) We need to do it more. We need to send more encouragement. And, And if your perspective on not receiving a message is one of hope, then there's an amazing opportunity for us to grow in this area. Because not receiving a message 
for me, is a trigger to be better at this, is a trigger to, to get better at seeing hope in situations, is a trigger to going, God, we've got some work to do here, and, and I'm not going to send one message, maybe I'm going to send three or four, or this week I'm going to do one every day, or this week I'm going to start every day and say, God, help me have hope in my day today, help me see the circumstances with hope. Because every situation where God is, there is hope. And so you could potentially look at this situation of not receiving a message as negative, or you can say, God, I'm going to see the hope in not receiving a message. Now, I hope these two things make sense, because I'm convinced that as a culture, as a church, this is something that we're going to keep workshopping. This is not a 10-minute exercise that means we do it once and then therefore we've, we've seen hope in people's lives and that's it. This is something that from now on I want us as a body to be championing in every circumstance. It's going to be tough. It's going to be really hard. And I want to finish with a story that I've experienced in the last couple of weeks. Actually, I'm going to give you two. The first one was Tuesday night prayer. Those that aren't at Tuesday night prayer, you're missing out. And I realize people have different circumstances and scenarios, but you are missing out. And I haven't been to Tuesday night prayer for three or four weeks. My Tuesdays are fairly intense days, and I don't often get there. Um, uh, but I, I happened to be home early on Tuesday, and I got to Tuesday night prayer. And a phenomenal thing happened towards the end of Tuesday night prayer. Because someone said, Matt, I believe we need to pray for you. And I was like, yeah, I'm always up for prayer. And as they prayed, the message that afternoon that I'd sort of started sinking into my mind, all of a sudden became very, very tangible. They were praying hope into me. They were praying and prophesying and speaking and declaring hope for me and my life, for ministry. And I was like, this really is phenomenal. And the Holy Spirit was stirring and snapping off some things that were wrong. And as the praying was going, God was doing something in my heart. And three or four people prayed for me and, and, and gave pictures. And, and as it happened, I was like, God, this is the most amazing demonstration of what hope looks like in people's lives. And you're doing it to me. I feel so blessed to be experiencing this. And I can say uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, they, there was nothing easy about those days, but I looked at them differently because of the prayer that happened on Tuesday night, because of the hope that was declared and prophesied and spoken over my life. It made a tangible difference to my days. Where the word of God is, there is hope. Just like Elijah, where the word of God is, there is hope. And I experienced that. The second story is also a personal one because my mum's my been in hospital for all about three weeks now. Early on, they didn't know what the cause was. It was clearly something significant. And because of COVID and, and um, the state that mum was in, it hasn't been possible to visit her. So the only information we've been getting is from my dad. And dad's been visiting her and the nurses have been amazingly gracious to let him stay for the whole afternoon. And so dad spent really good time with mum, even though the rest of us haven't seen her. But at the end of the day, dad would send an email to the family with an update. Every day, dad's a very faithful, diligent person. And every day without fail, there would be an email that is sent with an update for mum. And it wasn't always good. 
Mum was sleeping a lot of the time. She was tired. She was nauseous. Her speech was impaired. She, she was clearly struggling. But in the mix of it, a number of the emails, Dad pointed out what God was doing in the scenario. It's amazing because you're really just sharing with the family what the situation is. But the immediate shift of going, Mum was a bit distressed today, but was so glad when her Bible arrived that she could actually stop and be able to read the word. Mum had some tests today that she was really anxious about, but she found real comfort in singing some worship songs. Mum struggled today, but she's so grateful for God's presence with her and the way that he's been carrying him, her through. And she, she doesn't know how she would have got to today without having his presence with her. Now, you might go, they're just nice things to put into an email. But for me, they're profound shifts in perspective that say the circumstance is tough. I'm not denying it. But I also see hope in what God's doing. I am not going to remove God's hope from this picture. And when, when you read an email that talks about the challenges, but points out that God has not forsaken us, God has not left us, we are so val valuing prayer and valuing God's hand at work in this situation, even though it's hard, the perspective is completely different. And I want us to be a body, I believe God wants us to be a body that champions hope in all situations, that acknowledges and journeys with people through pain, but says, I will not give up on hope. I will not give up on the fact that when God's here, there is hope. Has anyone received a message? You don't have to put your hands up because then you'll expose some people not receiving messages and I don't want to do that. But hopefully some people have received messages. Hopefully Nath or I have received messages saying, I don't know how to contact this person. Can you help me? That was the only part of the, the thing that was hard and hopefully it wasn't too hard because bringing hope is going to get harder than that. But also for those that didn't receive messages, I really want this to, to motivate and spur you on to be part of what God's doing here. Let's just pray. God, I thank you so much that you're a God of hope. I thank you so much that wherever you are, there is always hope. Lord, like Elijah experienced, like Zacchaeus experienced, like the apostles experienced, Lord God, life is not easy. Circumstances of life can be discouraging. But Lord, I pray you would inspire, that you would spur us on, that you would lift us up to see things through your eyes to see your perspective, to see your hope in all situations. God, I'm convinced that you want us to champion this as a church. I'm convinced, Lord, you want us to, um, to be pioneers in this area. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would transform our lives first. I pray your spirit would transform what we look at with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, but also our attitudes of our heart, Lord God. Lord, we confess at times we can be discouraged and we can be discouraging of others. Lord, we repent of that. We say, God, we don't want to be those people. We don't want to drag the temperature of the room down, Lord God. We want to lift it up. Lord, I pray that in your mercy, you would give us another chance to be, to be new people, to be transformed people that look at things your way, that bring hope where people see hopelessness, that bring life where people see death, that bring salvation where people see condemnation. Lord, I pray you would restore our eyes and our hearts, Lord God, to see things your way. In Jesus' name, amen.